Amen. I like it when the uh, minister of music gives me so much time. Don't worry, I won't probably won't take it all. Well, how are you doing this evening? Good, good. I've had a wonderful time being at my home church last Sunday and this Sunday. And last Sunday, Brother David and Debbie took me out to lunch, and we had a nice uh, Mexican food meal. And today I was being um, uh, told that I was going to a wonderful place and have wonderful food and a place I would never forget and have food like I've never had. And David, this David was really... Uh, giving me, I thought somebody's going to fly me over to Atlanta or Birmingham or something for some kind of, but I was in David and Wendy's home along with Clint and Susan, and we had a, a wonderful home-cooked meal and time at the table, and I said to them, that's the first time in a while that I've been in a home with families and families sitting around the table eating together. People don't, people don't invite preachers to their house like they used to. I'm old enough to remember the days when preachers got invited to the homes. And and can I just tell you a real quick story? Thank you very much. <laughs> I was preaching a revival in Kentucky years ago, many years ago, Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And um, we were having noon services and evening services, and they provided a meal at noon and another meal in the evening. So the, and these Kentucky folks were cooking food like you would not believe. And uh, I'm in this home at a noontime meal, and I promise you there were four or five or six desserts, and there was main course stuff out the window. And this dear little lady uh, of the home kept putting stuff on my plate. And she said, you got to try a little of this, you got to try a little of that. And I'm a, I'm a pretty good eater, and I was, this was probably 1977, and I could really put it away then. And uh, <clears throat> I thought, Lord, I, I can't handle this. I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I was always taught you eat, you, you be mannerly, you, you take, you just do it, you eat, because they prepared it. But I was just, you know, you have a capacity, you can only take so much. So anyway, I'm thinking, Lord, I need, I need help. And out of my mouth came words that I don't think I'd even given a thought to till I heard myself say them. And I looked at this woman and I said, I probably need to tell you something. The more I eat, the longer I preach. God is my witness. That woman started picking up food and moving it away from me. The more I eat, the longer I preach. <laughs> It, it prob- that sentence probably saved my life, I tell you. Oh, mercy. It's been a good day. And um, Well, we're back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're in the last message um, for this time with you. And if I'm invited back, we'll see what the Lord has in store for us then. But I've enjoyed camping out again in 2 Timothy. Um, we turn our attention to verse 15. And before the reading, if we could just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, it's been a blessed day, and we are thankful to you for it. And thank you for sweet fellowship, good food, time with brothers and sisters in Christ, 
at the table, but Lord, for the time we've had in this sanctuary around the Word of God. And we pray that you will take the Word that has been spoken and etch it upon our hearts that we would not soon forget it. And take the Word tonight, I pray, to bring glory to yourself and blessing to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Verse 15, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're talking about the worker now. Paul said, be diligent, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is, this is a powerful, powerful verse, and a lot, there's a lot in it. But the, the, the verse that follows is a verse that is a contrast verse to verse 15. So we need to read verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Some translations say gangrene. Their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow or destroy the faith of some. This is the word of God. Well, four pictures, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, and the worker. We learn from the soldiers, we've said over and over already, the, to endure hardship. That, that is the character trait that Paul is trying to instill in Timothy when he used this picture, this metaphor, this analogy of the soldier. Drawing a parallel between aspects of the Christian life and military life. Be strong and endure hardship. When he laid the picture of the athlete down for Timothy, he was stressing another character trait, and that is that of rule-keeping, obeying the rule, obeying, as we would say in this context, the word of God. Live by the instructions of God's word. And number three, the farmer, the hard-working farmer, that man who uh, would toil and sweat, and that man who put his faith and trust in God. These are traits that every Christian should need. But now he comes to the worker. And in the, for the worker, he says, I, uh, uh, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. And here, Paul is laying down a, a character trait, a character quality that every Christian should have, and that is to live a life in which he or she is not ashamed before God. I'm going to probe a little bit in a few moments into my life and into yours. Have there been moments that you have stood before God ashamed? Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but actually we're going to come to this time in a moment that we will talk about that Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. How will we feel when we're standing there? Not answering for sin. Sins are under the blood. Past sins, present sins future sins. Our sins as believers are under the blood. We do not stand before God in a judgment upon our sins. We will, however, stand before God in a judgment upon our service. And that is why Paul is saying to Timothy, I want you to be a good worker. I want your service to be a service that when the end comes and when your time comes to stand before God, you will not be ashamed. 
And not only standing before God, but actually in the here and now that we would not be ashamed. Now many people apply this passage to the preacher, to the vocational preacher. And uh, they, I think they come by that because it says rightly dividing the word of truth. And I've heard people use this text mainly as, as a passage to be applied to the minister, to the vocational minister. And I'm not suggesting that you think that way, but I do want to clarify that this is not a verse that is exclusively used for the minister. It's for every Christian. In fact, all of these traits are for every Christian. It is every Christian's responsibility to be a student of the Word of God. It is every Christian's responsibility to rightly divide the Word of God. It is every Christian's responsibility to serve God. Every Christian's responsibility. We all have that obligation. We all have that privilege as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And this verse applies to everyone in this room. Dr. R. W. John R. W. Stott, an Englishman uh, who died just a couple of years ago, but was, pro- was declared by his peers and colleagues to be the premier theologian of our time pastor of the All Souls Langham Place Church in London for many years and was one of the most brilliant preachers I've ever heard. And Dr. Stott uh, made this statement. He said there are, on this text, he said there are two kinds of workers, two categories. He said there are workers who do not need to be ashamed. Their life has been tested as uh, the alloy for a coin has been tested to find that it's suitable, that that the metal has been tested to be uh, pure and free of impurities. This person has been tested and found to be a worker that needs not to be ashamed. That's the first category. But he says the second category is the worker who needs to be ashamed. This is the one who has been tested by the same standard as the previous worker, but found wanting Falling short of God's requirements. And I said a moment ago we needed to look at this uh, verse 16, 17, which we read because when Paul moves out of verse 15 talking about the worker who does not need to be ashamed, he immediately puts his finger on those who should be ashamed. The Apostle Paul, unlike modern day preachers, had no hesitation about calling names. How would you feel if your pastor called names? Well, you wouldn't like it, would you? Paul, uh, in the community square, on the soapbox, in the pulpit, preaching the word, calling names. He said, there are those workers who should not be ashamed. They rightly divide the word of God. But he said, I want you, Timothy, to shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. These are not good workers. They are Christians. These these verses apply to saved people. But they've gone off the tracks. They've backslidden. They've gone back to the old way. And their message will spread like cancer or gangrene. And just in case, Timothy, you don't know for sure who I'm talking about, I'm talking about Hymenius and Philetus, especially these two, who have strayed concerning the truth. That is, they are not rightly dividing the word of God. 
So it's important that we understand that there's a contrast. There's a, there's a quality of life that every Christian should possess that would put him in standing with God, that you can stand before God unashamed. Your life has been lived according to that quality, that standard, that requirement. Or as these mentioned in verse 16, 17, uh, are going to stand before God greatly ashamed. And there's another little phrase before we get into breaking open the verse. In verse 15, another phrase I want us to just think about for a moment. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, the word of God. This is, this is a, um, an unusual phrase, and uh, I remember in preaching class and studying preaching, we, we really dealt with this, this phrase. What, what does it mean to rightly divide the word of truth? The language carries the idea and the imagery, and there's a lot of imagery. That's what we're preaching on in these days together, the imagery, analogies, metaphors. But when Paul used the term rightly dividing the word of truth, he's using a term which would describe the worker cutting a highway a highway through the wilderness. That's that's the the literal meaning, cutting a highway through the wilderness. And the idea is to cut a straight highway, a straight highway. Make a straight path for those who are coming behind you to follow and to find their way to God, rightly dividing the word of truth. These two, Hymenius and Phygelus in verse 16 and 17, were not rightly dividing the word of God. And as a result, they were causing people to have doubt. They were putting people off the tracks. They were, they were being confusing to people. They were, they were a great interruption to their faith and their growth and their relationship with Christ. A negative impact. And Paul draws that contrast by saying, uh, in the contrast, don't be like that. You and I should not be obstructions to people finding God. We should be a superhighway by which they get to God. We shouldn't be putting up barriers. We should be tearing down barriers. We should be cutting a highway for people to find their way to God. One more word, if I may, before we move on to more of the exposition of the text. I want to look at that word diligent, and it's not in every translation. I hope it's in yours. Be diligent. What does that word mean? Sometimes we read words, we look at words that we see uh, routinely, if not daily, and, and we, we immediately translate that word or we, we affix a definition to it that, that may not always be as complete as it needs to be. This is one of those words that, that I've seen all of my life, I guess, in reading the word diligent. What does it mean? But it carries the idea of prompt obedience to God. It means quick, quick response, quick obedience. It means what Paul is saying here when he says to Timothy, uh, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. He's really saying don't, don't, uh, don't, uh, we would say lollygag around about this. Don't delay in this. Make it a prompt, quick response to him. And our obedience to God, brothers and sisters, should always be quick. It should always be a prompt obedience. The man who was my friend and mentor for 35 years, the Dr. Stephen Oford, a pastor of Calvary Church in New York City, was a wonderful man of God, a giant 
of a man of God. He stood four three inches and and four feet three inches and weighed 140 pounds, but he sounded like a lion in the pulpit. He was one of the greatest preachers of our time, Stephen Olford. But he said so many things that I still have echoing and resonating in my heart and mind. But he made a statement about obedience to God that is worthy to write down and to remember. He said, delayed obedience is the same as disobedience. Delayed obedience is the same as disobedience. You see, we, we don't have the option of standing before God and negotiating when we will do what he tells us to do. But so often we do in attitude and action. We put God off, not now, but later. Not convenient now, but later. And Dr. Overt said delayed obedience is disobedience. We must be prompt. That's the word diligent, diligent. In preparing for this message, I picked up a little book from my chef by a man by the name of Guy King. If you hear me, and you're probably tired of hearing me make references to people I read and quote, but I, I was, I've been greatly blessed in my life and ministry by the British preachers of another era, not the modern times, because uh, England especially, which was the launch pad of the gospel for the world in many ways in a century gone by, is now uh, basically a godless nation. But in its day, when they had the Whitfields and the Wesleys and the Edwards and the Spurgeons and men like that, and even into the early part uh, of the, the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, there still were spiritual giants. F.B. Meyer is one that comes to my mind. Spurgeon, and of, of course, and this man here, a man by the name of Guy King. Guy King's little book, he was, a, he was a pastor, preacher, but he was a devotional writer and put much, much of his preaching into print. And I found what he did with this text. And I'm actually going to use four things that he said about being a worker that needs not to be ashamed. And these are the four things we will hang our hat on for the next few moments. How does a person become a worker that should be ashamed? That He kind of approached it from the negative, in the back door, I guess you would say. How does a person become a worker that ought to be ashamed? The reverse of that, or the converse of that, is uh, to know how to be a worker that is not ashamed. His first point is this, by doing his work badly. By doing his work badly. And that is what Guy King says is a mark of a worker that should, should, uh, should be ashamed. God calls us to excellence, not to mediocrity, but to excellence. And how many times have we been guilty in our lives as, as pastoring people, preaching people, as individuals of giving God our second best or our third best? I've wondered what difference it would make in the kingdom of God if we did everything in our spiritual life with excellence. But it seems like if there's an area that needs to be trimmed back in terms of time, in terms of energy, in terms of effort that we exert, we turn to our spiritual life to do that. We dial it back in that area instead of some other area. And we don't do the best that we can do. To give God second best should make us ashamed. And this is for every Christian. It's not just the man who is in the pulpit preaching 
and pastoring a church or leading in a seminary or any other way. It's not just the vocational minister. Every Christian should give his best or her best to God. I was thinking about my wife when I was thinking of these, the, this part of this message. We married in 1973. We'd been high school sweethearts throughout high school. And, and then in 1973, we were married. I graduated from ARAB. Somebody was asking me about that this morning, 1969. We married in 73. And uh, neither one of us knew much about ministry. I pastored for two and a half years before we married, but she knew very little about ministry life, and um, both her home background and mine didn't equip us as well as we had wished for ministry. So we're both learners, and I wanted to be a preacher. I had aspirations to be a good preacher. I wanted, I wanted that to be how God would use me to fulfill my calling as a minister. But immediately she became, in that first year of marriage, a Sunday school teacher and even a training union. Y'all remember training union teacher? And she taught children. She became one of the key children's teachers in the very early stages of our ministry. And as the years have gone by until her health now prohibits her from doing that, she had her own little library, her own little workplace, and I watched her work, 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 work on a Sunday school lesson for second graders that surpassed what I felt like I was doing on a sermon for a congregation. I'm watching my wife work. And in the back of my mind, I'm confessing to you the the human side of me. Why so much effort for a child? I mean, can anybody teach children? (laughs) I tried that when we first married. She had a, a training union class. And uh, I, I, of, of uh, first and second graders, and I told her I wanted to be, I wanted to be in the room with her. I said I want to be your assistant teacher, so I can be a part of your team. I want to see what you do and how to teach children, because she had a way with them and I didn't. And I went one time, didn't say much, said a little, but I went the second Sunday, the next Sunday, and I said a little bit more and did a little bit more. I wanted to be involved and participate as the assistant teacher. And when the class was over and the children had been dismissed and were on their way to the sanctuary to prepare for the evening worship, my wife met me at the door of that little room and she said, don't come back. I said, what do you mean, don't come back? And she said, Roger, do you think a second grader has any idea what you meant by the eschatological ramifications of a pre-tribulation rapture? I don't, I don't think so. She said, you don't, you don't get it. Um, so don't come back. So I didn't go back. But I've watched her over the years pour herself into ministry to children. I'm telling you that story because sometimes we minimize, we may minimize the importance of the role we have in the kingdom of God. It may not be in the pulpit, in the spotlight, in the choir loft, in the classroom. It may be something behind the scenes. But what I've learned in 40 plus years, 45 years of ministry is that sometimes those behind the scenes responsibilities are the, are the responsibilities that make sure the people who are in the front get to do what they do and can do it well 
and minister to people. In other words, it's a team effort and everybody's involved and every Christian, man, woman, young person needs to give their best to the master. We function as a body. Paul said that. He said some people are hands and fingers and feet and toes and some people are ears and eyes and some people are noses. And he made that comparison. He said some people, and he said we even have parts that some people can't even see that people can't see. And he said, are we going to minimize the value of that part, that organ of our body that's hidden away that can't even be seen? What would happen if it was taken out of us, if it ceased to function? What kind of condition would we be in? And Paul took that picture and he said, we are the body of Christ. And you may think because you're the nose and you're not the eyes and you don't have a place of significance, but you do. You may be one of those unseen parts and you want to be one of the seen parts, but And you think because of that that you're not in a place of significance, but you are. Jeremiah 48.10, Jeremiah said, Cursed is the one who does the Lord's work deceitfully. That means with negligence or poorly. We need to give our best. And I'm sure you know this song. I'll just share a word or two with you. Give your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. And that's one of my favorite lines in the song. Give the strength of your youth. Young people are not the church of tomorrow. Young people are the church of today. Give the strength of your youth. I'm thankful that God was grace, grace, gracious enough to deal with me firmly, to get my attention as a teenager. I'm thankful that that I've been privileged to know that my young years and middle years and now older years belong to Him. Throw your soul's fresh Throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle of truth. Jesus has set the example. Dauntless was he, young and brave. Give him your loyal devotion. Give him the best that you have. So we move to number two. By doing his work easily. By doing his work easily. The first point was by doing his work badly and then by doing his work easily. This this is a comment by Guy King, meaning that, that it cost us nothing. Do you remember David's words? He said, I will not give unto him that which cost me nothing. And to do our work easily may imply that we're not investing. When we're, we're really not investing into the work. When the soldier served, he served with endurance and hardship and sacrifice. It cost him something. When the athlete was in... In the race, in the run, he had, to, he had to go by the rules. He had to be disciplined. He had to be determined. It cost him something. The farmer, it cost him something. And now we're seeing that to have a quality of life that would not be a shame standing before God is going to cost something. It's going to cost something. Stephen Oford, I'll quote him one more time, said, Service that counts costs. Service that counts cost. If I want to make a difference, if you want to make a difference in the world in which we live, it's going to cost us something if we want to be true servants of God. Service without sacrifice is shameful. Number three, we become ashamed, and I'm quoting Guy King, we become ashamed by doing the Lord's work fitfully, fitfully. That's his word, obviously an old English word, but it means inconsistently. 
It means on and off. Something that lasts for short periods of time. And you know the Lord dealt with this whole issue of, of doing things fitfully. He says, I, he said, you know, I, I would rather that you be hot or that you be cold. I want you to be on or to be off. I want you to be for me or just be against me. But this middle ground, I, I can't tolerate. This lukewarmness nauseates God. And he said, I will spew you from my mouth because of your inconsistency. Just be consistent. Don't do things fitfully. God will use a servant who will serve him consistently. And then the last point that Guy King makes in his little book is by doing nothing at all. We become shameful by doing nothing at all. We just sit back and watch. And for as long as I can remember, we've been operating on the same standard in the church. Do you know what it is? 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and 80% of the people watch the 20% do it. I've got a problem with that. 20% of the people do 80% of the work, while the 80% watch the 20%. And can I tell you where most of the complaining comes from in any church? From somebody in that 80%. I heard a story about a man that really kept an eye on things at church. And he was kind of the the warden, I guess, self-appointed. He monitored hours kept, money spent. And he found, one day he was doing his inventory, and he found that the church had bought three new brooms. And they were in the utility closet where the custodian kept his supplies. Three new brooms. He went into the office in a rage and said, What on earth do we mean spending money on three new brooms? We just Can't we just buy one new broom? Why did we buy three new brooms? pastor came in a little later and the secretary shared what had happened. And she said, he said to her, Well, I wonder why he's so upset. It's just three brooms. And she said, how would you feel if everything you'd given to the church in the past year was invested in three brooms? I cannot tell you how happy I am that you laughed at that. Preachers can go out on a limb sometimes. I want you to turn to a passage that we'll close with. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. And I was just thinking about this actually in the parking lot outside before I came in uh, a little while ago. This, this passage came to my mind about the worker. And you may never have looked at it the way I'm going to read it to you tonight. And, uh, but I want to uh, just look at this passage. We're going to start in verse 31. Matthew 25 and uh, just with a comment or two but mainly the reading and then we'll be done verse 31 of Matthew 25 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations will gather, be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And then Jesus said, For what I was hungry, talking to the sheep, the righteous. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty and a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, this is a pivotal verse here. The righteous will answer him and say, Lord, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we give you, when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is a lovely picture of unashamed workers. Unashamed workers. And I made an observation in my thoughts just a little while ago. Maybe I've thought of it before and I've forgotten, but I made this observation just a moment ago. That these people here described lived a life of such normal, unselfish, sacrificial service to Christ such a normal part of the ebb and flow of their life that they were not even conscious of what they were doing. Do you understand what I'm trying to say by that? They weren't even... When did we do that? When did we do this? When did we? When did we? Wouldn't it be wonderful that if our Christian lives were lived in such a way that just the normal ebb and flow of being an authentic Christian touched the lives of people around us and we weren't even conscious of a strain or stress or anything of that nature. It's just part of being an authentic Christian. When did we do that? I say to you that that is a life, that kind of life, will stand unashamed in the presence of God. Amen? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May we pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this evening. And as we prepare to sing a song to conclude, we ask, Lord, that if there's a need for one to come to make a decision for you that that person would feel the tug of your Holy Spirit and be obedient to your voice. Thank you for your word to our hearts tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If Brother David leads us in singing, I would invite you to come. If